prayerfully excited about this. Um, I, I, there's just so much that's come together for us to be the kind of place that can uniquely really help us, other churches start doing this. Uh, I think maybe the best comment that I've heard about is Jason Hills, who has led our next-gen ministry for a while. He said, you know, this is student ministry at a different level. This is meeting students where they are instead of asking them to come where we are. And uh, so we'll see. You know, anytime you're doing things with students, it's the scariest proposition. And I'd rather, I, you know, I, I'd rather dive with sharks for sure. Well, me, yeah, for sure. But I would rather, you know, do that than, than uh, in terms of safety to venture into this. But it's going to be... Uh, an exciting, exciting thing. We've got an amazing team of people that are going to be uh, impacting your kids. Uh, a number of months ago, Randy and I were talking, Randy Creamer and I were talking, and he said we were talking about some of this stuff with, to do with Players Box. I mean, you know, Randy leads the training of our counselors here. And uh, he reminded me of this quote that you can either prepare the road for the child or you can prepare the child for the road. And one of the things that we want to do with Players Box is to confront this tendency that's going on in our country today, hugely, and really, if in one simple phrase, to put before children that to live is to suffer. To, to live is to suffer. Anybody see Anderson Cooper's interview with Stephen Colbert this week. And the thing that brought them both to emotion was when Anderson Cooper asked the comedian who was Catholic, you said that what, at what point is the punishment of God not a gift? What did you mean by that and did you mean it? And Stephen Colbert went on to describe that as a J.R. Tolkien geek, he was actually quoting Tolkien, but he said this, he said, to live... To exist is to live, and to live is to suffer. And every time we suffer, there is a gift in it. Well, that's not how our culture tends, tends to embrace suffering, to the extent that parenting has really been affected by this. And as much as we would like to talk about how technology has changed so much in the last, you know, in the, in the 21st century, the thing that has changed the most in the last 30 years in particular is parenting. It has radically changed, especially since the time when, when uh, you know, it doesn't seem like that long ago, but it was a long time ago when people like myself were children. Um, all of us who were parents, all of us who were parented, we wanted this reciprocal relationship of a parent who nurtures and protects, who gives a strong, secure base and then experiences that allow for that child to, to develop and, and, and say, hey, here's what I'm good at, here's what I love, here's what I, I'm not good at, here's what I don't love. And every parent wants to create that kind of context of exposure to opportunities, concepts, people, and events that develop them. How that gets done has been hugely, hugely shifted in the last 30 years. Um, Here's how I was raised. I just want to tell you this. My parents were just not that involved in my childhood. They just weren't. And I grew up bemoaning that fact. Now I realize it was one of the greatest things that have ever happened, that has ever happened to me. You know, I was the fourth of five, first of all. So there are no pictures of me. 
I don't know what I looked like when I was little because by that time they didn't take pictures of us. They didn't. And, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I know it's cliche, but it is literally true. Our house was, the fir- it was an old farmhouse that we had renovated. And, and, and then all these houses when I was growing up were being built around us. And so on a summer day, when after we had our Cheerios, mom would open the door and she would say, dinner is at six. And, I mean, I, now I think I could be at the Dairy Twist at any given moment. I could have ridden my bike the mile and a half to the Hanover Pool. I could I had driven, driven, uh, ridden it the two miles up the hill to the high school playgrounds. I could, have, I could have ridden it just down to Houston's Marathon. I could be at the Ball Diamond at the Presbyterian Church all day. Uh, I could be at my friend's house in their ba- I didn't, I, she didn't know. There was no GPS. There, there were no cell phones. And I, I remember I used to gripe about the fact that my dad, my senior year in high school, came to two of my games. And I used to think that was terrible. Now I wonder. Because there was actually a genius in it. I want to tell you how I was raised. Not only would we be found at the ball diamond, the pool, and the dairy twist, we were often at the playground where we played on monkey bars. Can you believe we survived monkey bars? Now, there's a Stanford professor and a child specialist named Julie Lithcott Haynes, who uh, I've been studying her work and her research recently. And she has written a book called How to Raise an Adult. And it's subtitled Breaking Free from the Overparenting Trap and Prepare Your Kid for Success. And she asked the question. When, why, and how did parenting and childhood change so much? And she points to four events. All of them took place in the 80s. The first one was, in the 1980s, the uniquely American phenomenon of the self-esteem movement took root. And this movement said that your child's personhood is more important than their outcomes. How they're treasured and nurtured is more important than what they actually do to function and to develop in maturity as a part of society. And again, according to child development expert Amanda Ripley, her extensive studies on the self-esteem movement says that this was a uniquely American phenomenon. The second thing that she says is this. In 1983, another shift was the increased awareness of child abductions. All I have to do is say one name, Adam Walsh. And those of you old enough to remember know, something shifted in the American parental psyche. And all of a sudden, milk cartons changed, right? Television changed with John Walsh on TV talking about the latest child abduction. And she says, Julia Himes says, that what that brought was the birthing of our deep fear of strangers. We are going to protect our children. Our children will not be abducted at the mall. How many of you ever walked through the Dayton Mall and your child was on a leash? Because they weren't going to get taken by one of those strangers at the mall, right? Also, she said, thirdly, in 1983, the idea was presented that our children aren't doing enough schoolwork And this came as a result of a publication called A Nation at Risk. And it argued that American kids were not competing well against their peers globally. (gasps) 
And this birthed federal programs like No Child Left Behind and Race to the Top. And soon, American kids and their parents were buried under mounds of homework. Most of them multiple choice type questioning, which have nothing to do with how we function in the real world. But it really shifted because, again, she emphasizes not only did kids start feeling the pressure of you have got to measure up. You have got to take these tests and you've got to do well in these standardized tests. And guess who else besides the kid owned those outcomes? The parents. The parents. The fourth event that she says took place, and this is a mom talking. Okay, I, this is not my research. I'm merely speaking into Julia Lithcott-Himes' research. But she said was significant was in 1984, the play date was created. And she said a practical scheduling tool progressed. Once parents started scheduling play, then they began observing play. And when they began observing play, that, that led them to being involved in their children's play. Which I would add anecdotally to that, which led to the tragic banishment of monkey bars. <laughs> and she says, these four events shifted parenting in this country. It shifted. Until in 1990, two researchers, Foster Klein and Jim Fay, observing the phenomenon of overparenting, termed the phrase, helicopter parents. Helicopter parents, and I was one of them, are those who, I'm not going to be that dad who only goes to two of my son's basketball games. No way. I'm going to be at every game and every practice and before every practice. I'm going to coach and I'm going to overcoach. And, I'm gonna, and, and, and so as a result, many of us, and I, just, I am just wishing I did not have to confess it, but the truth were, is, is, is reality here. Many of us, as all of us do, we did not make the mistakes of our parents. We made the opposite ones. And we've taken that, as of 2018, to another level with what was termed in an anonymous blog by a school teacher in 2018. She spawned the now viral phrase that it is no longer helicopter parenting we're dealing with. It is lawnmower parenting. She said lawnmower parents go to whatever lengths necessary to prevent their child from having to face adversity, struggle, or failure. Let me say that again. Lawnmower parents go to whatever lengths necessary to prevent their child from having to face adversity, struggle, or failure. And the teacher who wrote that post told a story of a seemingly reluctant father who dropped off a water bottle for her, his child at her school. Hi, sorry, the father said sheepishly. She said he was in a suit headed to work. He said to her, Remy kept texting me that she needed it. I texted back, don't they have water fountains at your school? But I guess she just had to have it out of the bottle. He chuckled nervously and said of his junior and high school daughter, teenagers, right? And she said, I looked at him back as if to say, 
yes, I'm a mother, but no, I don't, I don't have any compassion for you. And she went on to write, the lawnmower parenting style really focuses on short-term goals for parents and their kids. Their question is, if I could make this easier for my child, why would I do that? Why wouldn't I do that? Lawnmower parent, parents, she says, will intervene or mow down any person or, uh, or ob- person or obstacle that stands in the way of their child being inconvenienced or discomforted. So educators will tell you today that in my day, it, boy, does that sound like an old guy talking. <laughs> in my day, uh, it, it, when, when, when we talked when my, you know, I, I, I've told you before that I am the only person I've ever known who one grading period got straight A's and an F in conduct. I did not know that that was humanly possible. I did it. I did that. So when that happened, my parents were not going at the administrators and at the educators going, what's wrong with you that my son, here he's this great student and, and he's got all these behavioral problems and it's, and it's not his fault. No, no, no. That's not the conversation in my house when, when the F in conduct report card came along. And today, it's pretty well documented, and it is not an exaggeration that often teachers and administrators, you're in the way of my child developing because you're not giving him enough playing time, you're not, etc. Now, there are variations of this. There's bulldozer parenting. I don't know if you've seen the show on HBO, Big Little Lies, Laura Dern, if you want to see what a bulldozer parent is, her character is a bulldozer parent, snow, snow plow parents, you know, just, but my favorite is curling parents, where they're just going down the path of their kid, smooth, I just love, don't you just love that, isn't that a great image, I like that, let's just call it that the rest of the series, curling parents. And so as you can uh, probably already tell, we in the player's box do not believe there's anything more important than this grit, grace, balance. This toughness, tenderness, balance. It's, it, that to raise children to be an adult, it's, it's not just our task. We want to raise children who have the grit and the grace of Jesus in them. It's this incredible balance that, you know, I always think of Jesus, uh, what was said of Abraham Lincoln, he was velvet steel. And that was Jesus. It's amazing the, the, for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame. He sat down at the right hand of God. And this same Jesus, you know, a little child felt comfortable in his lap. Isn't that a great, isn't that a great combination? And that we today are seeing the extremes of neither happening the extremes of one happening but not the other. And our goal with this series is our goal with Players Box is to raise up parents, because really a lot of Players Box is, is about our impact on parents who raise children of grit and grace, of toughness and tenderness. So I want you, uh, if you have a, a phone, take a picture of this, because you could talk about this as a family, grandparents, parents, aunts, uncles, coaches, teachers, uh, we're going to walk through this ser- throughout this series as we look at some, some of these implications of this. And um, this is just simply a toughness-tenderness matrix, okay? So if you look at it over here, if the environment uh, of your family, of your team, is high toughness but low tenderness, it, it re- 
breeds huge amounts of resentment. In other words, there is challenge going on. There is rigor being demanded of. And when you get that and there's not grace and gentleness and tenderness, you raise up a generation of, of resentment. And I, I've been, I said this is eight years in the making. It's because I started doing this at a, at a small group level in 2011. And as a result, I've been involved with so many student athletes. And I cannot tell you how many gifted female athletes in particular have the guts to say, I'm, this is not fun at all. This is not fun at all. I'm angry at everyone. And uh, it, 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 uh, gifted athletes. And they just resent the whole process. And so when, when there's high toughness, low tenderness, problem. When there's low toughness and low tenderness, that's just an apathetic environment that creates apathy. It creates disengagement. And so the idea that, hey, just leave kids alone in, in terms of don't train them. Don't, don't be involved in actually raising them up. When I talk about my parents weren't involved, oh, when that F in conduct came in my report, they were very involved at that point, okay? I'm not saying, hey, just let them go. It's not our responsibility to raise up tough and tender people. No, it is. And so one of the things is these students will digress, and this is the classic video game uh, young person that my son, who has worked in helping people with children who are addicted, he has uh, more than one time looked across a parent and said, your son's playing of video games all his life did not prepare him for life. It just didn't prepare him for life. No, I can't tell you that he's going to come out of this addiction. He has no grit. He has no emotional resilience. And this is what you get when you get this total, total delegation of the development of, of uh, training and, and ten, uh, toughness and tenderness. And then on this one is low toughness and high tenderness. And this would be the context where in our family, we're just, we love each other. We support each other. We don't have ex high expectations. We, we just think it's so important that our child's self-esteem gets nurtured, etc. And this is the parent who is constantly intercepting anything in the way of the child emotionally so that they never really develop, they never really develop emotional toughness. And this is the classic underachiever. This is the classic uh, individual who has a difficulty launching, right? Uh, some parents uh, this time of year are, are, you know, moving their 30-year-old back into the house again. You know, that kind of thing where you just go, hey, hey wait, what's going on here? Well, there's, there's an inability to sustain because this person lacks uh, what I think is the number one characteristic of life, and that's perseverance. It's like if you have perseverance, you can do about anything. But when you have an environment where we intentionally leverage events to create emotional toughness and compassion and tenderness, uh, this is the empowered person. This is the person who had the privilege of being taught, coached, parented by someone who knew that their role was to make themselves obsolete. That's a parent's job. Your job is to make you obsolete. Your job is not to raise good kids. Your job is to raise adults who can make good decisions. 
and decisions that tend to get filtered through a character that's tough and tender. And so as we go through these next couple of weeks, everything you've ever wanted to know about parenting, I want to say in the next, no, that's not going to happen. But I'm telling you, as we go through these next few weeks, this is your grid, families. To look at and say, you know what, we're we're kind of imbalanced over here. We're, we're kind of imbalanced on this side. There, there are some things we need to talk about. Those of you who, like ourselves, have raised your children already, we, when our children were in their early 20s, we had to have conversations about this. There was apologizing that went on on Sherry and I on our behalf. There was apologizing that went on on our children's behalf. So just because, I don't know if you figured this out yet, but when your kids turned 21, Have any of you figured this out? Parenting's not over. It's really just getting started. It was the minor leagues before then. Then it's the major leagues from then on out. And so we've had, this has been the basis, in so many words, for us to have crucial conversations about mistakes that we made and how that affected our kids. And so for those of you who say, you know, our kids are grown. This series doesn't apply to me. Oh, For those of you who say, we don't have kids, this doesn't apply to me. If you were born of a human being and raised by larger human beings, this series applies to you. Because some of you are carrying around resentments that go way back to this this issue right here. And you're going to need to hear this to process that. Now what we're going to do, particularly for the next two weeks, is we're going to walk through Hebrews chapter 12. And I want us to take a big, uh, a 10,000 foot scan of this right now. And, and I want you to see this because this is an amazing statement. And if you can accept this by faith, it will change how you see life and it will change how you see God. Actually, last week touched on this a little bit when I talked about so many people in America now see Jesus as their whoopee. Jesus' job is to make you happy and when he doesn't make you happy... Uh, we have problems, when life's not good, you turn to him, etc. And look at this passage, Hebrews chapter 12, but for the sake of time, I want to pick up at verse 4. In the previous three verses, he's, he's spoken into, look to Jesus as you run your race, as you, as you run down the road set before you, look to Jesus. And then he says this in verse 4, in this all-out match against sin, It's really interesting, and I want you to think about this, families, as you talk about this. Sin is not just something we do. Sin is an entity, a virus that has infected the human reality. So all of us, when we're born, we inherit the sin gene from our mother. (laughs) From our parents. I just want to see if you're listening there, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, we all inherit that. And it's really interesting. This doesn't get talked about. That when at the end of the day, what we're battling is the word hamartia means to miss the mark. How our parents missing the mark, how our missing the mark is affecting us. Because often we just think of sin as this moral transgression. Sin is when we ever we fail to, to live up to, here's what God's plan for us is. And so every single person here has to, at some point, process the resentments of their life. Because guess what? 
you, your parents were not perfect. They, they gave you some things that they needed to give you, and you needed them to give you, and they didn't give you some things that you needed. That's just parenting, right? And it's, it's a sin problem, and that's really important as we approach this. Now, he says, don't see yourself as victims. Others have suffered far worse than you. <clears throat> to say nothing of what Jesus went through, all that bloodshed. So don't feel sorry for yourselves. Or you've forgotten how good parents treat children. And that God regards you as his children. Verse 6. My dear child, don't shrug off God's discipline. That very statement right there, Southbrook, means this. That in the sovereign filtering of God's hand, what he allows to come into our life, he intentionally allows adversity to come into our life. That's exactly what that means. How many of you are honest, you don't want it to be that way? Yeah, we don't want it to be that way, right? We want God to be our whoopee. And that's not a Greek word, whoopee. That's not a Greek word. Don't shrug off God's intentional allowance. Now, I say that because it doesn't mean he causes certain things but in his sovereignty he allows but don't be crushed by it either it's the child he loves that he disciplines uh, uh, let me say it again it's the child he loves that he intentionally doesn't make their life cushy <laughs> isn't that amazing the child he embraces he also corrects. I told you this last week. The thing I love about Jesus is I know the hundreds of times he has rebuked me. I just know it in my spirit that he's rebuked me, and it's never been shameful. It's never been overly crushing. Anybody ever know Christ in that way? You, you just, like, I just love that about him. God is educating you. That's why you must never drop out. This is why when it's tough, we can't quit. He's treating you as dear children. Next verse. This trouble you're in isn't punishment. It's training. The normal experience of children. Only irresponsible, curling parents leave children to fend for themselves. Would you prefer an irresponsible God? No, 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 no way. Next verse. We respect our own parents for training and not spoiling us. So why not embrace God's training so we can truly live? While we were children, our parents did what seemed best to them. Can I get an amen from all the parents in the you know, at the time? But God is doing what is best for us, training us to live God's holy best. At the time, discipline isn't much fun. It always feels like it's going against the grain. Later, of course, it pays off handsomely. For it's the well-trained who find themselves mature in their relationship with God. And as we'll see in this series, you know, what, you, know what, you know what maturity is? You know what it means to be well-trained? It's the ability to manage your emotions. The ability to not let your emotions manage you. That if I could put maturity in its simplest form, it's not being governed by what happens to you and the emotional reaction to that. Next verse. So don't sit around on your hands. No more dragging your feet. It's got to be intentionality with this. Clear the path for long-distance runners so no one will trip and fall, so no one will step in a hole and sprain an ankle. Help each other out and run for it. 
And we're just going to break down those words. What I wanted you to see there, Southbrook, is the portrait that's painted there that we have a model of parenting in our Heavenly Father. That God is constantly in our lives orchestrating events so that we develop grit and grace. That's really what he's doing. He's constantly in our, involved in our lives through the Spirit of Christ to lead us down a pathway that develops inner toughness and external tenderness. This is what he's doing. And that then that, that path is the pathway that he calls every single parent to take. Now, did you notice that verse in verse 4? Look at this verse again in verse 4, this phrase. In this all-out match against sin. I want to lead us now as, as we wrap this introduction message out tonight. I want to lead us down a path of, of you using the communion tonight to, to think through this in regards to you. What I mean by that is this. Let's start out with just looking at ourselves because we produce to some extent what we are. And so as a result, many of us, because we've never really analyzed what is, how, how was I parented and then how did I either embrace that or overreact to that. As parents, we tend to either compromise or compensate. We compromise by, you know what, I smoked dope when I was a kid. I'm not going to get on him for that. I'm not getting on. Well, by the way, the dope that kids smoke today is a little stronger than what you had. But we tend to compromise. We tend, I don't want to judge him for things that I did when I was a kid. So we tend to, hey, let's grade on the curve on this one. Or we tend to compensate. Oh, my dad, my dad was so hard on me. I'm not going to hold him accountable for anything. And so as a result, we fail to see the effect of sin. Let's just call it what it is. This, the title of this message is, by way of the Foo Fighters, Long Road to Ruin. The long road to ruin starts when parents don't look at themselves and say, I'm in balance in the grace, grit, toughness, tenderness thing. This is why. And we've never talked about this issue as a family, and, and we need to deal with this head on. And so as a result, we've never really, the constant refrain of the New Testament is, take a look at yourselves, take a look at yourselves. Wise people, they don't judge themselves, Paul would say. I'm not qualified to do that, but I do look at myself and see what, what really causes me to do what I do. And to bring those unconscious actions to the surface. Well, another book I've been reading this summer is fascinating uh, because it was uh, so creative. Look at the title on the screen here. Um, Patrick Quinn and Ken Roach wrote a book, How to Ruin Your Child in Seven Easy Steps. So anybody interested in how to ruin your child? But the, the gist of the book is this. It's based on the seven deadly sins and a parent's inability to analyze how those have taken root in their own life and then how they're either compromising because of those things in their parenting, or they're compensating for those things. So I, I can't tell you how many times people who were wild as horses in the desert, and, you know, when they were high schoolers, are now the most legalistic parents you've ever seen. You ever seen that happen? I mean, they're not going to let their kids be wild. Oh, man. And so look at these, look at, look at these uh, seven deadly sins and how they manifest themselves. I've got this. I'm not the problem. The deadly sin of pride, right? There's nothing wrong with me. I'm, we see it correctly. And uh, this, is, this is a deadly, deadly 
unconscious attitudes some of us have. Next one, number two. If it feels good, it must be good. The, the deadly sin of lust. If it feels good, do it. And our job is to make each other happy. It's, it's a pathway of ruin. Number three. Focus on what you don't have, the deadly sin of envy. This leads to comparison. And so the, the short-term goal of our family is to live up to everybody else, to measure up to everyone else in our suburb. Uh, number four, it's all about me, the deadly sin of greed. It's about what we can get. And so we raise up people who are not coming into a room and saying, hey, where, here are you, how can I serve you? We're raising up people who walk into a room and say, here I am, how can you serve me? Next one, number five. You always need more, the deadly, deadly sin of gluttony. You always need more. There's, it's never enough. Contentment is not a part of our family. And that inner insecurity constantly drives us for more and more and more. Next one. The easy life is a good life, the deadly sin of sloth. And, of course, this is behind so much helicopter and lawnmower parenting. And that is, let's make the path as easy as possible and the last one is the deadly sin of wrath. If you don't get your way, get mad. And this is the whole idea that we're not responsible for our emotions. Other people are responsible for making us happy and contented. Now, Southbrook, I want you to look at those because every one of those sins have been taken to the cross. And Jesus died to take the penalty on himself. So then you would be so secure in God that you would be able to walk out of his life for you with the understanding, I'm now secure. We don't need to measure up. We don't always need more. We, it's not about us. I mean, there's the, the implications of what the Hebrew writer says in that look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our journey, who set the race course before us. If you'll look to him, if you'll run the race with him, parents, coaches, teachers, you won't be compelled to do so many imbalanced things because you're either trying to compromise or you're trying to compensate. And I want us to take some time this weekend to just settle in and look at that. Take some time tonight, Southbrook, to sit and think about Jesus. John 1.14 says, Jesus came to us full of grace and truth. There was a velvet side to him and there was a steel side to him, wasn't there? And that if we'll look to him and walk with him, we get the security that makes us velvet steel, that makes us tough and tender people. Not bullies who are trying to get our way, not victims who are always getting trampled over, but tough and tender. We have the ability to set boundaries because we have a dignity that comes because God died for us too, right? And we have a strength because we've overcome everything, even death through Jesus. There's a, there's a story that Kay, uh, Carrie Kimpakis, she's a writer on this stuff, she wrote. And I love this, I love this balance because this is how God fathers us. Uh, she wrote these words years ago my friend's daughter really wanted to be chosen as swimmer of the week at their country club it's an honor bestowed weekly to one child per age group in the summer parents will sometimes call the club to request that their child be picked but my friend didn't want to do that she wanted her daughter to win the award through hard work and perseverance so she told her child when you get this award you'll know you earned it you'll know I didn't have anything to do with it it took her daughter two summers to be named Swimmer of the Week. 
it took her daughter two summers to be named Swimmer of the Week. As you'd imagine, she said, she was so proud of herself when her efforts finally paid off. But the biggest surprise came in the summer's end when her daughter received the coach's award at the banquet. The award is based on hard work, attitude, and performance. And to this day, this child still gets recognized for her work ethic by teachers and coaches. She receives honors like Hardest Worker Award and Team Captain. And while I'm sure, she, Carrie Kimpakis writes, her work ethic is partly due to her nature, I'm also certain that nurturing at home has played a big role too. God looks at you and he says, listen, I have graced you by adopting you as my child. That's the grace part. Now I'm going to grow you. I love you just the way you are. But I love you too much to let you stay that way. And God doesn't necessarily prepare an easy road for you. He won't. To live is to struggle. That's reality. That's reality for you. That's reality for your five-year-old. That's reality for your 50-year-old. It's reality. But God says, I'll be here with you all the way. And someday when we get to the end and you are the person in my presence that I thought of when I came up with a vision of you, you'll know that it is a result of you making the choices to follow my grace to the very end. And that produced unbelievable grit. Amen? Let's pray. Father, nothing makes one feel secure, any insecure any more than talking about parenting. All of us who are parents, we feel like we failed so much to achieve what we wanted to achieve, to behave like we wanted to behave. But every grandparent, parent, aunt, uncle, teacher, coach, counselor, as we humble ourselves before you in our gathering this weekend, we start by looking at ourselves. How sin passed down from Adam through our parents to us has affected us. Taking that sin and just saying, I lay it at the cross. You took on the burden of this and now I am a redeemed child of yours, God. With full access to your grace and the security that comes, I don't have to live up to what my parents didn't do or to live away from what my parents did. I don't have to keep up with the people who live next to us. I don't have to have more. I don't have to be more. I am enough because of your grace to me and that produces a security that leads to wisdom, that leads to a person of grit and grace, of toughness and tenderness. And I pray that as our church ventures into this journey of raising up students, that this is the end game. And we begin by, by just acknowledging ourselves in the light of the one who was the toughest and the most tender, the one who endured the cross, the most gritty and graceful person who ever walked this planet. His name is Jesus, and he is our leader. And we thank you that we know what a father and a mother look like because we see them in how you parent us. So, Lord, we give you this series. We give these next few weeks. We give you prayerfully the launching of the player's box that that it would just uh, be a way that in coming years we impact the Connor Betts of this world at a very s early level and change the 
trajectory of their life. It'll have been worth it if we do that and students feel loved. And we ask this prayerfully dependent upon you in the name and character of Christ our Lord. And everyone said, Amen. See you next week, everybody, for part two.